I'm Amy Shields. I'm Mark Frost. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson. So our Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book, is currently out at bluerosemag.com. It is $19.99, so get your copy today as supplies are very limited and will be running out very soon. So if you haven't got your copy today, go to bluerosemag.com today. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. Books. My name is Scott Ryan. I am the managing editor of the Blue Rose Magazine. And today we want to welcome Mark Frost. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming out on, under such adverse circumstances. We've got everything against us. We've got the weather, yeah. we've got acts of God and government and everything. It's just crazy. So let's do Can the ceremonial corral. Yeah. yeah. Get that going. We it's the new hello. So David Bushman wrote Conversations with Mark Frost. These two men had over mm. 20 conversations together. It's a Larry David table. Mocha it is, Joe isn't it? Made Yeah, this Mocha table. Joe. This is a Mocha Joe table. Not, not so good Mocha Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um... So they had 20 conversations and more, more than 20. Yeah. Yeah. 20.5. <laughs> and that became this new book that just was released this week which is Conversations with Mark Frost. Great uh, timing. Yes. <laughs> so um, let's start with you, David. Yeah. Um, where did you come up with this idea to do Conversations with Mark Frost? Um so I've been a long time admirer of Mark's work. Um, Twin Peaks obviously is what uh, I think it's fair. In fact, I think I asked you this question. I think it's fair to say that's what you're best known for. But um, I worked for 27 years at the Paley Center for Media, and I've known a lot. I've studied TV history for a long time, and I knew that Mark, Mark's contribution to TV went way beyond that. And um, I knew that he, that there were so many interesting stories he could tell relevant to the history of TV beyond Twin Peaks. So I know he, I knew he worked, he came up through the Universal system in the 70s, which was where shows like Macmillan and Wife, Columbo, um, McLeod, Name of the Game, so many shows were produced and so many great writers uh, came out of that, that system. And I, and I knew that the writers' room at the Hill Street at Hill Street was legendary with David Milch um, and Stephen Bochco, and so I was motivated by that, but mostly to be honest is that, um, and I think this is my argument, and it's my argument and Mark had nothing to do with it, I feel like um, he doesn't get necessarily in all circles the attention he deserves, A, for um, revolutionizing TV and actually being largely responsible for the quality of TV that not not all by himself, but but <laughs> for you know the quality of where, where TV has evolved to today, which was like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and um, Watchmen, 
I think Mark doesn't get enough attention for that. So that was kind of where I was coming from when I, when I reached out to him. And he ignored me at first. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark, did you have any trepidation for doing this? You know, you knew to do a book like this, you were going to have to open yourself up. Uh, were you, was it an easy decision or was it a hard decision? Uh, it was one I wrestled with for a while. Um, simply because I, I, um, I don't like to talk about myself a lot. And I feel secure about what I've done. I know, you know, I know the things that I've done. I was actually more won over by the argument that, and it's in the subtitle, The Education of a Writer, that my experiences might be useful for people who are just starting out, young writers, people who want to get into the business. Maybe they could learn something and benefit from that. So, and there's a lot of entertaining stories too. You know, I've 45 years in show business. So you, you have some interesting experiences. and. I, we we ended up telling a lot of those stories, so um, that was more my reason for wanting to do it. And I thought, you know, you get to a certain point, and you're um, you're supposed to be perspective taking in life, right? You get to a point where you look back and you say, okay, what have I done? What can I what can I do? How can I be useful as a storyteller in ways other than maybe just telling stories? And so the book added up to something I wanted to do to to take stock of my own life. Um, and it was a great opportunity to do that. It was, it was actually kind of fun. We, I, I grew to really enjoy our, our sessions and he was very persistent. And, uh, he dug up all sorts of stuff that I'd forgotten about and probably helped me remember stuff that I'll you know, carry with me the rest of the ride. So I was grateful to David for that. I think also that one of the lessons, I mean, it's a tough, world out there in Hollywood and trying to make movies and films and I think you know your perseverance I think that's one of the really important lessons for for aspiring writers to learn it, it's not it does the chart doesn't look like that you know it's kind of like no this. there are no participation medals in show business <laughs> um, it's it's a Darwinian system it's very cruel to the people who are working in it um, it's it's notoriously got its mind on the bottom line rather than than uh, art more than commerce, uh, commerce more than art. But uh, coming of age when I did in the late 60s, early 70s, it coincided with this golden age of, or what they call the silver age of Hollywood, where the, the studio system was kaput, all those, all those businesses had, as models had sort of failed. Television had made great inroads into the share that movies had on the American audience. So we had this amazing period uh, from the late 60s until the late 70s where American contributions to world cinema were probably as great as they've ever been. And, I'll, you know, you know all the, the films, you know the directors. It was Coppola, Scorsese, De Palma, Cronenberg, um, uh, Lynch. I mean, there was a whole group of people who otherwise might not have had their voices heard. And so I grew up in a period where, weirdly, there was a kind of idealism about the movie business. You really thought you could do art and commerce kind of 50-50 as a, as a proposition. The guys, the people who were making the movies still wanted to make money, they still wanted to be successful, but that wasn't the bottom line. It wasn't corporate executives with no experience in the business, which is what we have now, um, deciding what stories to tell. It was it was them backing filmmakers with passion and vision 
and letting them run with the ball. Look back at that period in American film history, and I wish, I'm, I always try to encourage younger people to do that because there's some extraordinary work. I mean, I watched Five Easy Pieces last week. I had just finished a book about Jack Nicholson, and I said, I haven't seen Five Easy Pieces in years. And it's a masterpiece. I mean, it's some of the greatest performances ever put on film in this country, including Jack's. That's what film can do. And a, a lot of that has now fallen to what we call premium television, that kind of storytelling, that kind of melding of art and commerce. But for a brief shining moment, it was all in the movie business. And I was fortunate to land here when it was still going on and to sort of catch the tail end of it. And well, that was fun. Well, looking out, people are basically my age. One way that you got to really change television was everyone who was my age that was a kid in the 70s, when we played in the backyard and we were chasing someone, we said... I mean, I was surprised to find out that you started on the Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah. I mean, can you even remember working on this? Oh, yeah. No, man? it was a big deal at the time, you know. Um, that show was huge for a kid. Anybody yeah. here watch the Six Million Dollar Man? Does anybody know where Steve Austin was from originally? Oh. James does, but he's not going to raise his hand. Must be Texas somewhere. Oh, hi. You know where Oscar Goldman's secret lab was, where they rebuilt Steve Austin? Oh, hi. Interesting. You know where Jamie Summers, the bionic, bionic woman, woman, was from? was my first crush. She was from Oh, hi. I got to kiss her once. Um, I don't know if that's in the book or not. But no. She let me. I mean, she wanted to. <laughs> of course and she I, did. I, I, oh I my had gosh. her permission. But, we just meet um, Mark Frost. Uh, what did we do? Was and, it and, from Ohio as well? Was who? Is it dog? Jamie Summer's dog. I d I'm assuming so. It was probably a family pet, right? Um, and the, and the, the credit sequence, when he actually, the first time you see him run really fast, he's running along some of the white fences out in the East End. They shot the whole credit sequence up here. So wow. little did I know, I never, I had never heard of Ojai at the time I was writing the show. In fact, I didn't even know that it was a real place. I just thought it was something they made up. Um, so that was kind of a cool thing to move here many years later and remember that. That was that was kind of my first dive into pop culture with, with a sort of a hot show. I mean, seven, Six Million Dollar Man for kids anyway was yeah. you know that was kind of the top of the heap. It so. was my lunchbox. I mean, yeah. I had the Six Million Dollar yeah. Man lunchbox, and yeah. I, I never knew that you were a part of that. I actually, I, I was surprised to learn about 10 years ago that, you know, they merchandised the heck out of that show, as they did most Universal shows. And they made a, a toy uh, of a character called the Robot Maker, who was played by an actor named Henry Jones, who I introduced in the episode that he was introduced in. The, um, so to, somebody gave me one of these, and I realized I've got a toy based on a character I created like 50 years ago. Um, and uh, you'll be finding it on eBay any day now. But no, I will not, I will not sell the Oscar Goldman robot maker doll. One story that you do yeah. tell in the book about those days is what it was like to go into the Universal uh, cafeteria. Yeah. Uh, Universal, which you referenced at the time, was kind of the last remaining intact studio system studio. They were making over 30 hours a week of primetime television at a time when there were only 66 on the air. That's crazy. This was Lou Wasserman's business model. He wanted to dominate um, television, own all the syndication rights, 
And uh, so when you went to lunch in the cafeteria, first first time I ever went to meet Steve Bochco, he had gone to my college, Carnegie Mellon, and a friend of mine named Charlie Hay. Do you remember Renko on Hill Street Blues? Charlie was also a Carnegie grad. He had come to direct a play there at the end of my junior year. And he said, well, you ought to come out to L.A. and meet Steve. Um, and I thought, okay. I mean, I, I had grown up out here and had moved away when I was 13, so I was eager to go back. My girlfriend was in Los Angeles, so I hitched a ride with some friends, and three weeks later, I was writing at Universal. I really struggled during those three weeks. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I... I I'm not saying I had it easy, but it, I, they greased the skids for me, and um, I was able to show up and do the work. Television moves fast, yeah. and some things last and some things don't. To me, because I'm of the age, Stephen Bochco, I watched him change television. I don't really know how many young people understand what Stephen did, yeah. but put Stephen's legacy in, in perspective. Well, when I met Stephen... He had been at Universal for 10 years. He'd never had a hit show of his own. He was working as the story editor on Macmillan and Wife on the Rock Hudson, Susan St. James show. That was part of the wheel with Columbo and McLeod with Dennis Weaver. They would alternate 90-minute mysteries every third week. They would, were in a rotation. Um, so uh, Stephen, when he got the chance, uh, he'd created like three or four shows that hadn't gone anywhere. Um, and he came up with the idea for Hill Street Blues in, I want to say, 82, 83? Uh, no, 81. They did a short season, uh, a half season on NBC. Didn't do anything in the ratings. It was a success disteem. It was everybody saying this is going to change television. But nobody was watching. And the second season was interrupted by a writer's strike. So in the first two years, they had only done partial seasons. I joined the staff on the year we did our first full season. I was there for three years. Um, so we got to just kind of ride the rocket of that show becoming, if you remember, it was 10 o'clock on Thursdays, Thursday nights, yeah. which was the must-see TV. That's where that whole phrase came from. Friends was at 9. There was uh, another show at 9.30. Was Cheers it? was on. Cheers was in the Oh, Cheers sorry. Uh, Cheers, Cheers, not Friends. Uh, I think Night Court. Yeah, Night Court was there. And uh, then... Um, so... It was an exciting time to be a part of that show. And then Stephen went right from that to creating L.A. Law, which also ran for seven years. And then he, right off of that, he went back to Cops and did NYPD Blue for, I think, 12 years, right? I'm not sure. It was a long, a long time. time. So that was Stephen's legacy. He, he kind of um, created and perfected the ensemble cast drama in both of those genres. And he later did Doogie Howser, which put him in all three of the staples of television, lawyers, doctors, cops. Um, and then he did Cop Rock, where he had singing cops, and that didn't work out so well. No. Does anybody remember Cop Rock? Sure. It only ran for like Rand, a half a well, season. Well, Randy but. Newman did the yeah. music, and right. I, actually, this is just a personal question. Ignore this, but do you like Randy Newman? I love Randy Newman. Because I was thinking, you should love the song Great Nations of Europe. Do you know his album, Bad Love? Yes, the, it's yes. all about Europeans conquering and killing right. everyone with diseases yeah. as they get there. And I'm in yeah. this time, I'm thinking about it all the time. It's, it seems like a Mark Frost album. Yeah, so, no, I'm going to go order it. Yeah, as listen as I get to home. Bad Love by Randy um, and every song on it. One of the things about Bochco, one is that one I think 
terribly overlooked show of his is Paris that he did with James Earl with Jones. James Earl Jones, yeah. An episode specifically about the death penalty and uh, somebody who's executed in the episode, which is incredible, yeah. uh, which we have at Paley Center. And the other thing is that he and Bruce Paltrow, who is better known as Gwyneth's dad at this point, but uh, they created a show called Operating, a pilot called Operating Room, yeah. which was pre- uh, Said elsewhere and pre Hill Street, so yeah. sort of like the it was sort of prototype like the, the prototype. Those, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so it was an exciting place to to work, and it was exciting to. I mean, it was the, when they started calling it water cooler TV when people would come in on Fridays and talk about last night's episode of Hill Street. So that was my model for how a television show should work: um, how you run a show, how you run a writers' room, and how you try to capture an audience. So those were all things I tried to move forward uh, into Twin Peaks with that as as my uh, base experience. One of the main differences I feel like between like Hill Street and Twin Peaks and many other shows is other shows take a long time to get the audience. Twin Peaks is like the exact opposite where yeah. you had everyone the first episode. I mean, nobody knows why anything happens, but why do you think Twin Peaks pilot was so huge that people well, tuned in? it was finished almost a year and a half before it aired, so we had a lot of time to try to get word of mouth going. We had a lot of screenings. We had a lot of um, uh, influencers, as they call them now, you know, critics, writers who, we, uh, who saw the show early um, and talked about it, and... Um, it just, uh, there were two things about it. One, it had, you know, a pretty good hook. Who killed Laura Palmer? <laughs> you know, it was a mystery. But Laura's death was the greatest uh, exposition machine in, in history because it allowed you to tell everybody's story through the lens of their relationship with her. And it was a, uh, just a beautiful way to introduce the town and, and create a set of tension uh, right away that you know people hooked into but I mean the numbers have changed so radically what we you probably know better than I but I think we had something like 35 million people watch the pilot right. maybe it was more yeah I think but, that's right um, those are like almost Super Bowl numbers today you, you, that many people don't watch the, sh the same show anymore so uh, that's that's what we got the first night and ABC, which had been dragging their feet and didn't know if people were going to like it and were kind of terrified of the show themselves because it broke a lot of their rules. But they were in third place and desperate. So they said, okay, we'll put it on in the spring. For It's only seven hours. What's the worst that could happen? And it turned out to be the most talked about show they'd had for, I don't know, 20 years. So, I've heard that their first promos just did not capture what you guys were going for at all. Do you remember how yeah. they wanted to market it and, and how you guys changed their vision? Yeah, we, um, we scared them the first early on. We just said, look, uh, no offense, but we're not going to take any notes from you <laughs> for on the show um, because I don't think you'd know what it is we're trying to do here and they said okay I mean they couldn't force us to uh, and and I'll never forget we were in a notes meeting after the we'd handed in the pilot and the executive took out a list of the, the notes he says you might now I'm going to go over my notes or would you like to hear, hear what we thought and 
we both went, not really. <laughs> and they were, it was sort of like hitting them in the face with a two by four. They just sort of went, you know, they didn't know what to make of it. They, they, and they, he just kind of calmly put it back in his pocket. And, um, it, it, it's like punching a shark in the nose, I guess, when they get too close to you. He, they just never brought it up again. No, nobody was more surprised than I was, but it worked. And, um, but to your point about, they had created a bunch of promos after seeing the show. And one of them I'll describe as they had a character who looked like an old prospector standing next to the Twin Peaks town sign and laughing for 30 seconds. Cackling. <laughs> okay. That was their idea of a promo for the show. Uh-huh. They thought, okay, that's going to really pull them in. Um, and at that point we said, no, you know, why don't you let us do them? And so they said, okay. So we made, we ended up making the early promos. It was, I mean, the, the rule book was just out the window. They, they were just going to go on the ride. You know, if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, you know, hopefully no one would ever write a book about it. Um, and uh, then, you know, as soon as you get the, the numbers out there, then everything is allowed. Everything, everything parted and we just did what we wanted to do. David, you've written about Twin Peaks for many years. You had to prep questions for Mark, knowing that he's had to answer them many times, and a lot has been asked. Or not. <laughs> well, he's been asked them. Whether he right. answered them or right. not is another thing. Yeah. What, was, what was it like for you to prep for something that you know so well, and you know Mark has talked at all the time? Well, I did try as much as possible to stay away from the evergreen questions that have come up time and time again. So that was... Um, and so that was important to me to not rehash things that were already recorded because we t we've talked about this yesterday that um, as a historian I think it's really important to get history right because second because source materials like this become secondary sources for the next person who's going to do a book on Twin Peaks or Mark or whatever and there's a lot of misinformation out there so there's also a lot of information out there that contra that's, that's contradictory of, of things I mean you know, obviously, we all know one of the big questions was how much David Lynch was around in season one. So, so I really kind of tried to focus on things that hadn't been asked before and things that had been asked before but had been answered in three or four different ways. Um, just to kind of set history, history straight. Right. So, answer and, that. And I asked him about everything I didn't understand, but he mostly wouldn't. Wouldn't well, nobody could answer everything you don't understand. Um, but I'm bummed. I didn't. I thought I'd have a rim shot. Next time we'll have that guy. Um, talk about season one and and your staff. Who was there? You know, and what went on in season one? I mean, I realize that's a big question, but I, yeah. I mean, staff wise. Um, well, we had, we'd gotten an order for six additional episodes after the pilot. The pilot was two hours, everything else was, you know, a regular hour. Uh, so seven altogether. And so it was what we call a, sh a short order. And um, so I didn't really hire a staff per se. I hired one guy named Harley Payton, who was a friend of mine who was from the film world. He'd never worked in television, but I knew Harley really well and he was a really smart guy. And I showed him the pilot and he said, I'll do anything to work on this with you. I, I mean, and so I had faith that he could pull it off. So he was there. 
Um, and then I just, I hired, I think, one or two freelancers to come in uh, toward the end of that first session. Otherwise, I, I wrote them. David and I wrote one of the scripts together. And um, that was pretty much it for the first season. What about Bob Engels? Oh, sorry, Bob was there. I, my, my apologies, Bob. Um, Bob was an old friend of mine from Minnesota. And he, um, he also came in as a, a writer, producer, associate producer the first season and wrote one of the first seven. Harley wrote one of them. And then, um, a, a, as David said, uh, Lynch was off making Wild at Heart at this time. He was shooting it. So aside from uh, writing that one episode with me and um, obviously do, you know, doing some press and stuff, he really wasn't there. I mean, he was just busy. So, um, so you know, my job as the showrunner was to make the show and get the hours ready and show David the scripts and the cuts and, you know, he seemed happy with everything, so everything was going along fine. You know, can I just ask, I, I asked you, I think, a question years ago. I was at a panel where Steve Bochco and David Kelly were both there. And yeah. David Kelly said, who's, who's done, like, L.A. Law and... Um, Picket fences. Picket fences and the practice. He said that um, uh, when he has a problem with a script, uh, he's more than likely to throw everybody else out of the room and do the fix it himself. And yeah. And where Bochco is more likely to bring everybody into the room to try to fix it communally. And I, my question to you is, which which method is more your style? Um. It was more my style when I had a trimmed down group like that to do it myself. Um, and what I'd learned, Stephen didn't do this as much, but I always did the last pass of every script. The, the whatever the final polish before shooting was uh, was always me. And I I saw that as part of the job. I, I didn't um, didn't mean you were going to take credit on the show. And in fact, it was considered bad form for showrunners to. There's unfortunately there's some who do that who. We'll try to put their name on every episode. But um, working for Steven, he taught me that that was a, the way that you helped your writers grow. You gave them residuals. You gave them a chance to put their name on something and have pride of authorship. And I think you work a little harder when that's on the table. So that was what I tried to do. Um, when I interviewed uh, Tim Hunter, I'm pretty sure that's correct. No, the guy who directs Larry Sanders a lot. Uh, Todd Holland. Todd Holland. Yeah. He directed the episode that begins in the ceiling and it comes out and then we come down and we see Leland um, being interrogated. Yes. He got to do the soundscape and he said uh -huh. he built this whole thing and he didn't know who did it. He was just doing it and he gave it to you mm -hmm. and you listened and he had Cheryl Lee say daddy no and to him it was about you know Leland don't don't kill Jacques Renault mm -hmm. and you heard that and that was your one note to him is remove Cheryl Lee's yeah. daddy no and he walked away from that meeting thinking huh so how Tim you know, was did no those dummy. Things happen to you a lot where someone's writing <laughs> um, a script. You know who did it. They yeah. don't know who did it. Was that part of your job to make sure that they didn't tip the scale without? Yeah, because uh, we didn't scale? tell anybody um, who had done it. Uh, we kept it. We kept it private. We didn't even tell uh, Ray until he shot the scene, the day he shot the scene, where he is um, interrogated and ends up being nabbed for it. 
we actually wrote three scenes, um, and I think we shot them. Did we shoot them, or did we just talk about them? We we, we wanted to do misdirection with shot the cast them. because we didn't want the cast to go. I know who killed her. <laughs> you know? uh, so we we had three scenes with uh, different people who had killed her. Um, did, Richard, did Beam, yeah, you shot Richard Beamer was one. Yeah, we shot one with him. Uh, Fred ben, Silver, was Ben Horn, and who? Fred Silver was he the third? Frank. Fred. Fred Silva. Fred Silva. Oh, Frank Silva. Frank, Frank Silva. Silva. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As Bob. Um, so it was, you know, it was like a trade secret. We didn't want anybody to, uh, didn't want it to get out, and it didn't. I mean, that was the good part. It, it worked. No, uh, all the scripts were controlled. Everyone was numbered. So actors were only James knows because James was in the return. Um, he only got the pages for the scenes that he was in. He didn't know what episode they were in. Um, I told him the name of the character. That was nice. That, of you. that was nice. Of you. But um, so yeah, we just we wanted to keep it as secret as long as we could. Mm-hmm. And then you know the famous part, and you guys certainly go over it here, is what's considered the downfall in the second half of the season. The second um, season. Yeah, in the second season. Yeah. I. I'm actually a fan of season two. I mean, mm-hmm. some people... Um, how, how do you guys feel about season two? Let's hear a clap for... Do we let you record? Nobody's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I think there's some great, great episodes. I'm even talking past 16. I mean, yeah. there's some rough ones, but I really feel like it's only two really rough episodes, which every show in the world has. You have to make 22. Who makes yeah. 22 great yeah. episodes? Um, looking back, you know, how do you view that section between Laura's end and Wyndham's introduction? Well, um, there were circumstances beyond our control. Um, uh, we had a, a whole major storyline planned. And uh, do I name names in the book? Um, I, I can't I, remember. I think you... I, think you, um, I don't think he does. Do I, does he, he does. Tell, he mean, does. Hard for me to remember what wound up in the book and what didn't. Yeah. Uh, oh, now uh, everyone wants the missing pieces of the uh, Yeah. <laughs> it sounds to me like Mark has enough stories for ten books, but yeah. Anyway. Um, what uh, the the actors didn't want to play the story, or one of them didn't, um, for whatever reason doesn't matter. But um, so we were left literally on the verge of shooting the episode with having to completely scramble the script. Now that happens in television. You 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 do what you have to do to get the, the episode ready. But we had to do a lot of scrambling for a, those two episodes that you talked about. And the Wyndham Earl storyline with uh, Ken Walsh, who was an actor I'd worked with in Minnesota years before playing Wyndham, we had to move that storyline up. Um, and uh, I felt we hadn't done it quickly enough, that it, that, that it didn't have the same roots that uh, the Laura Palmer uh, mystery did. But I think once it got going, it was, you know, it was kind of fun. And it was a great nemesis for Kyle. So um, that was one element. The other element, which is um, sort of forgotten, and we do talk about this in the book, is that those episodes started airing right in the middle of war with Saddam Hussein. So if you remember John Arnett standing in front of Baghdad on CNN and the city blowing up behind him, well, we were preempted for like six out of eight weeks in a row because they were cutting live to Baghdad to the bombs falling. 
And um, it was a hard enough show to keep track of as it is. And if you suddenly took it away from people for that long, um, they started to lose the thread. So it was a combination of the story being a little bit weaker than it had been. And I think the circumstantial thing of the show simply wasn't on the air. Um, uh, and then were we already on Saturday nights at this point? In the second, the second season? Yes. We were. Yeah. And, yes. and this was what was the craziest thing to me. Um, the show had been at nine on Thursday. Is that right? Yeah. Nine. Cheers. Yeah. Um, and it did, you know, really good business. Saturday has always been known as the graveyard of network television. It's where you put shows that, I mean, to put a, it'd be great now because it's mostly t programming for elderly shut-ins. You know, it was people who couldn't get out. Who, younger people were going out. They weren't watching television. VCRs hadn't really taken hold. It was before DVRs. Um, if you had a show for your grandparents, you know, Saturday was usually the night they were going to put it on television. And they decided to put us on Saturday night. We had been the hottest show in television on Thursdays at 9, which allowed you to have that watercolor Friday. And they thought, I know, we'll move it to Saturday night. And I just went, what is the thinking here? It took the air right out of the balloon. And it was really hard to build an audience. Uh, and we kept the audience all the way through the end of the, the Laura mystery. And it, it hadn't really degraded that much. But at that point, that plus the the war in Iraq, we, we had some real problems. Mm -hmm. I think ABC kind of inadvertently did you a favor by waiting to put it on because <clears throat> you had the entire first season written, shot, yeah. not having to worry about anything, that any sort of feedback from, from uh, there was no internet really at the right. time, but you, which has really become the model now for shows like Mad Men and yeah. they don't they don't have to deal with feedback from uh, from uh, from, they can't deal with you that because the whole entire season is already written. It's already written and direct, right, yeah, right. and, and done, think and they can't. That was yeah. a precedent that you guys set. Maybe I don't know whether you know may not have been intentional, but I think it, it it's the it's the right way to do it. I yeah, I mean the you know the model for television is uh, or was twenty two to sometimes twenty six episodes a year, and um, and I'd learned to do that grind at Universal. That was how all the shows were, were that length and it took it took a lot out of you it was nine to ten months work and you'd have a couple of weeks off and then you'd get right back into it again so um, I I felt it was a real advantage to have seven episodes to shoot without anybody having seen any of them and then know that it's there as a consistent piece of work and when it came on the air we were able to kind of not sweat as you said, how people were going to react because there was nothing we could do. Um, it was the second season where we had the production monster chasing us as we were right. moving into the cal through the calendar year where it became a little more challenging. And then we jump ahead 25 years and you get to come back. In those 25 years, were you always thinking, I bet someday we do Twin Peaks or did you really never think about it? We talked about it a couple of times, uh, particularly when the DVDs started to really hit and um, a kind of a new generation found the show because they were watching it. We put out, we put out a, um, a gold box box set of the first two seasons, kind of at exactly the right time when DVD use was at its peak around 2007. 
Um, and that started to really ramp up the community again. And um, a lot of people who'd been living with decaying VCR tapes and um, they suddenly had a new way to watch the show. And obviously they had a new way to talk about it because of the internet. And that had never really gone away. There had always been a very lively, very dedicated fan group online who kept it alive. And they started the festivals in Seattle and in London and um, they were really nice people and we, we tried to accommodate them as much as we could with the, they became very friendly with a lot of the cast I mean you know some of the cast better than I do at this point from all the things you've been to um, so in 2007 we said yeah maybe but not quite yet and then in 2012 I called David up and said I think I have the way to get back into this and I took him out to lunch at um, Musso and Frank's if you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that's the famous scene at the beginning. I went there for lunch yesterday before our book signing. I've been going there since 1965. So, um, so we had that memorable lunch, and we went back two or three times to Musso's to, to talk about it more. And we talked for fully a year before we wrote a word, just to try to map out what had happened, where, who, the, who was new, who was old, what the new world of the show was going to be. And then we wrote in complete secrecy um, the first two hours and um, for a number of reasons uh, mainly because we had a business relationship already with CBS Home Video which was all under the aegis of Paramount Viacom CBS um, we thought Showtime would be the right vehicle to bring it back on the air and so we had a meeting with the CEO uh, he wasn't the CEO yet um, um, uh, David Nevins who was an old friend of mine and they loved it and they read it and said, we want to do this. And then it was just about making the deal. Um, tell me about Dougie Jones. Tell me uh, what you see in Dougie Jones. Um, Dougie was, I know, a, a big frustration for a lot of people. Um, but we felt that there's a, a level in which the story of the return is the spiritual journey of Dale Cooper. He's been kind of severed from himself. He's been reduced to a sort of drooling nincompoop. I mean, a kind of baby, really. He's kind of reborn, and he's got to learn. I mean, that's how we thought of it. We thought, okay, well, he's been to the, the Red Room, um, and uh, his evil twin has been out there, which was all set up at the end of episode uh, 22 of the second season. I mean, that's that was going to be the story for episode for season three. Had we done it then, it was going to be. Um, we were calling him Mr. C then, but he was going to be out in the world, and Cooper was going to be trapped. And it's how does he, how does he get out and get back and save the day? Um, and so we came up with this idea that he's got to really kind of grow up from infancy in a very short period of time in order to work his way back to being himself. It, it, for some people, it went on a little too long. Um, but, you know, we both liked the same kind of comedy. We both liked, love Buster Keaton. We loved W.C. Fields. We loved the Marx Brothers. We loved, um, those as sort of our template. And, and Dougie was kind of a, do you remember the silent comedian Harry Langdon? Does anybody remember Harry Langdon? 
he was a big silent comedy star in the 20s totally forgotten now but his character if you want to describe it was that he was sort of a baby an innocent who was put into all these situations and crazy things would happen around him and he was never harmed and I always thought Harry Langdon was really funny so I thought Let, let's try to create these situations where Cooper sort of his instincts take over when he's in trouble um, and so he constantly avoids I mean if you remember there's like three hitmen who are sent after him and um, and the maybe well it's one of my top favorite scenes in the return is when he comes down and has breakfast to Dave Brubeck's take five yeah you know that first day at breakfast I don't know it just made me laugh and um, uh, and and Kyle just got it you know he really understood the comedy of it and it was a lot of fun to write and a lot of fun to do and to watch happen um my thing with Dougie because I know everyone's interested in what I think with this panel um it's just it's about kindness I mean his kindness seeps out of him and everyone ends up better because of it but it's an interesting way what you pointed out because as it went on I thought I feel like Mark and David don't have a um, a lot of faith in what kindness gets you, mm. you know, because mm. he um, he does seem docile, mm. of course, but he also is this beacon of kindness, and it's an interesting. It just gives you a lot to think about. So, well, it was that's it, to me about Dougie. Uh, to me, the that that whole the the whole Vegas story, which I was um, which was I'll tell you was part of the pitch I made to David was that he's going to come back he's going to be in Vegas it's going to be a crazy time there and it's like sending a um, what would happen if Gandhi walked into Las Vegas you know Gandhi with the mind of a sixth grader or a third (laughs) grader and he just emanates pure goodness does he change the atmosphere around him and so that was where the Mitchum brothers came in. You know, these right. two hardened criminals. They're fun, you know, but um, obviously a, a bit of an homage to Robert Mitchum. Um, and, but for Dougie to fundamentally alter their character just by being in their proximity was kind of an interesting, dramatic, comedic way to go. Yeah, I think it's it's my favorite part of season three. So I want to give you guys a chance to ask some questions, because we ended up talking more than I expected. Does anyone have any questions for Mark or David? <laughs> Somebody has questions. Yeah, let's hear. Well, this is from my son. He's oh. like a major fan. He sent us here today. Um, okay. He wanted me to tell you that he loves all your work. You're his favorite writer. Oh, thank you. Twin Peaks. And okay, what was David Lynch trying to say with the flashing windows of a Learjet? I have no idea. The flashing windows of a Learjet. In season three. Yeah, when they're when they're flying to North Dakota. Yeah. Um, That was a hot topic on the internet. Was it? Yeah, people were interpreting that there was some kind of sign language going on through the lighting. The flashing windows. Is it an exterior shot where the windows are flashing? Mm -hmm. I have no idea what it. I mean, I don't. I don't think there was any significance whatsoever. Uh, All right. uh, It was. uh, I I would like to give him a more entertaining answer uh, than that, but it 
it was a stock shot. I remember. I, I don't think we we didn't hire a Learjet and go up and shoot it from another Learjet. So <laughs> there may have just been flares from the sun off the windows in the in the piece that we bought. Um, I mean, I hate to give it such a prosaic answer, but uh, and that's. I'll, I'll jump off her question yeah. and quickly like. Well, tell me this... what what were the theories about it? Well, I don't people thought it was Mar- Morris code. Um, I mean, it's it's the sun hitting the windows. It it's it's real. just the sun hitting the windows. Yeah. But is this your favorite part of Twin Peaks or your least favorite part of Twin Peaks that people study every oh, I, single thing? Oh, I think thing. it's great. You love I mean, that? Yeah. I, I mean, because I've always said, who's to say they're wrong? You know, you right. when you look at um, any great uh, painting, um, are you getting only what the artist intended you to see? Are you are you thinking about it only the way they or he or she wanted you to see it, or are you seeing what you see? You know, I mean, it's it's the same thing here. It's if you saw that and it meant something to you, then I can't say that you're wrong. You know, um, that's I've sort of maintained that from the beginning that art is supposed to be an interactive process, and. Um, you as the audience are supposed to have your say about what you think. You're not supposed to just wait for the creator to say, this is what I want you to think. That's didacticism. And um, that might work in an Oliver Stone picture, you know. Um, um, uh, but it's, uh, I think that's a harder argument to make that that's at the heart of what the artistic ex- experience is. It's, it's for you to take from it what you will. And um, it's for us not to overinterpret it for you. Right. But I mean, that, because I grew up in the theater, that was the, that was the root of the theatrical experience. You, you have an idea about what the play is and what the story is, and everybody's working in concert, hopefully in concert, pulling in the same direction to, to make that happen. What the audience is going to take away from it individual experiences is going to vary widely depending on who you talk to or who was there um so i learned that in a way is sort of none of our business Mm -hmm. that's your relationship to the work um i could talk for an hour about the 75 times i've watched chinatown and what it means to me every time one particular scene rolls into another but I can't tell you that that's what Polanski and Town and Nicholson had in mind at that moment. That's just simply how I see it. So um, I think that's healthy. And I think to insist that anything only be interpreted one way is kind of totalitarian. I mean, um, Kim Jong-il made a bunch of movies like that in North <laughs> Korea. Um, and, you know, we haven't seen too many of them. Uh, because they weren't intended for any audience who could make up their own mind. Right. I think this is a very good time to ask you uh, yeah. about Scott's theory about the uh, side of uh, what side of um, the head Kamaglakan is parting his hair on. But that's a firewalk with me question. So oh, was that, that just firewalk? Yeah, just it's, firewalk. it's okay. I have a and, it, and my theory was proof true. Don't argue with me in front of this. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't your time proof to question me. So. Now look what we've done. We're you made my phone fall out of my pocket. See, um, in the back. What question do you have? No, you're in the back, sir. You got a Bookhouse Boy sure. T-shirt on. You have a question for Mark Frost. How's it looking for season four? What is there? Uh, there's uh. 
Well, you just uh, left the set this morning. We were there. Yeah, you were there this morning. <laughs> I mean, I, it's too early to say. I mean, that's the easiest. That's the easiest way to answer it. The answer is actually in the lights on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> if you could correctly interpret that scene, you could probably find the answer you may or may not be looking for. We we yeah. talked about this too. I mean, as somebody who, again, I see myself as a historian and. It's interesting to me to know what you think of something because I'm trying to piece together common thematic preoccupations mm. of yours over the course of your work. So um, I think that the artist's opinion, I totally agree with you, it's not um, the only uh, interpretation, but I think that the artist, the interpretation of the artist intended or brings to it is important in the sense of trying to analyze or um, deconstruct that person's work o- over the course of his career. Anita? In a dream world, if you could spin off one of your characters, uh-huh. which one would you choose? Um, well, you know, we were planning to spin off Audrey Horn. Um, and in fact, that's, uh, that is the, uh, the start of what became Mulholland Drive. We were going to send Audrey Horn to Hollywood. Um, and we actually wrote a treatment for it. Um, and it was going to be called Mulholland Drive, uh, and that big, uh, that you know, David and Bob Engels wrote a pilot for it, which was divorced from the world of Twin Peaks, which ABC did not pick up after they had ordered it. You may you may or may not know the story, but um, and David, kind of crestfallen, decided to get some money from a French company, shoot another hour of material, and out of that he turned it into what many people consider his masterpiece, Mulholland Drive. Um, so that was the one character that we had thought of at the time. Um, I mean, I, I, it'd be fun to do a show about the Mitchum brothers, you know, um, the, the gangsters with a heart of gold is a, you know, a classic kind of character all the way back to, uh, um, what's his name from Guys and Dolls, um, Nathan Nathan Detroit. Detroit, you know, um, that was, that was part of an old show business tradition of, uh, softy criminals um, without the Scorsese touch. But, um, so I think that's that's a good answer. For... Yeah, I, I actually really like that answer. You got one? Um, episode 22 of season two. Yeah. Uh, in the Red Room. Yeah. Uh, the late, great Hank Warden is in there. Yeah. And I know Michael J. Anderson did the same thing with the... Woo! I always wondered if Hank Warden doing that was an homage to the searchers because he does the same thing. You're the first person who's spotted that that I'm aware of. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I got to work with a lot of great people who were kind of at the end of their careers, like Hank um, and um, Woody Strode. Mm-hmm. I, I did a movie with him. It was, I think it was the last movie he made, maybe second to last, called Storyville. So... Um, just uh, my dad was in the business as you know he was an actor and um, I grew up around it and so I always loved the idea of lineage and history and getting to know and meet these people from that era I mean that's why Russ Tamlin and Richard Beamer were two of my favorite people on the show because you know we could talk we could tell they could tell stories for days piper Laurie, you know all that we had like two generations of actors well three really because we had people from the studio system we had people like 
Peggy Lipton, who had been in huge stars in television before sort of their second act. And then we had a bunch of kids who were just starting out. So it was a, it was a great sort of mix of community. And I, what I tried to encourage with the cast was um, no social distancing. I wanted them all to hang out. <laughs> I wanted them all to benefit from the experience of their elders and learn about the, the history and this respect for, for storytelling. And that we're all there to do the same thing. So um, part of the reason I think the show had the cohesiveness that it did is that we did do those first eight hours completely apart from any audience reaction. It was just us. And um, everybody bought in. There wasn't a single person who said, I got to do things my own way. I, I mean, I worked with David Caruso on Hill Street Blues. I know how it goes the other way. <laughs> it's not pleasant. Um, and uh, there's no room for that kind of narcissism in a, in a creative enterprise. I mean, unfortunately in Hollywood it happens a lot. But here we tried to create a different atmosphere. And uh, so that was the fun of it for me, was having people from that era who could interact with us and, and do callbacks to things that we all loved, you know, that we grew up with. I just love the bravery of starting season two with that guy, you know, I with call Hank. senior drool cup. Yeah. But coming in, and I mean, I love that scene. If you love yeah. that scene, you love Twin Peaks, and if you didn't, change the channel and watch that mouth. <laughs> well, I mean, Hank, yeah. could tell, Hank was telling me stories, I don't know if, if you'll even know this name, the most famous stuntman in history who started with John Ford in 1925, I think, on a movie called The Iron Horse, silent picture about a, uh, a train, that was the Iron Horse. Hank Warden was around for that. And Yakima Kanat, have you ever heard that name? Yeah. Yakima Kanat, the most, it was really the first great stuntman. And his sons and grandsons were in the business. And so I got to talk to Hank about Yakima Kanat and John Ford and, and the Duke. I mean, it was just, you know, it was fantastic. Woody Strode was telling me stories about making the professionals. and. Sergeant Rutledge was another movie he starred in for John Ford from the early 60s. Do you know that movie? I know. Great movie. You, you know it, no, don't I you? No, I don't know. It's about a black um, officer in the Union Army who's put on court-martial, and Woody Strode was phenomenal. Woody Strode was a four-sport athlete at UCLA with a guy named Kenny Washington and a, an athlete you may have heard of named Jackie Robinson. They, they all played four sports at UCLA. Um... You know, uh, Woody became pretty famous early on because of Spartacus. He's the guy who fights Kirk Douglas in the ring with the trident and the net. Um, I mean, he was telling me stories about Spartacus and what that set was like. You know, there's no substitute for that sort of oral history in our business. And it's it's something that there's far too little of. Uh, so it, it was it's exciting for me to always meet people who've had those kind of careers. There was another, we kept it up with other actors we brought in. Do you remember in season two, there was a kind of traveling judge who came in, Royal Dano played mm -hmm. the character. I was in Cox with Gregory Peck to play that part. Oh, wow. His kids were trying to urge him to do it, to do this show, because they loved it. And he ultimately said, you know, I've, my memory's not what it was. I don't think I can do the, the speeches you've given him. But there I was on the phone with Gregory Peck talking to him about coming and doing our show. So that that was pretty cool. 
Well, just so you know, I lost a Twin Peaks trivia question about what drink he orders. Royal Dano? Yeah. What did he order? A a Yukon Sucker Punch. I'll remember it forever now. I got to, uh, I was six away. I could have gone to the next. Really? So I hate that character. Oh, sorry about that. That that character is so eloquent. Yeah. No, no, it cost me winning. Hate that guy. Last one? Oh, yes, you, this pretty young lady in the middle. Um, Are there any shows now that you feel um, share the mantle of Twin Peaks, political legacy, continuing the legacy? Well, there's, there are certainly shows I've, you know, deeply, richly enjoyed over the years. Um, we were talking about Watchmen, the new, the new iteration that, that Damon Lindelof did, which I liked a lot. I thought that was kind of groundbreaking um, I'm, I'm really eclectic with with stuff that I watch I mean I I'll watch Curb Your Enthusiasm for as long as those guys are alive <laughs> I mean that's that to me is my idea funny you know um, um, and I think that's probably considering he's been doing it for 20 years albeit once every two years you could make an argument that's the greatest comedy show in television history it's and i keep forgetting to ask you this yeah your dad was on seinfeld how exciting for for you was that that your dad it was cool was in with grace in the same episode jason alexander said we were almost brothers-in-law i think (laughs) i think that's what he said your father was almost my father-in-law right so we're sort of tv (laughs) brothers-in-law um yeah, Dad was on Seinfeld. He he played Gary Shandling's dad on the Gary Shandling show too. So, um, and I got to I got to know Gary, um, and uh, he was really fond of my dad. So, that was kind of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, what's great about the business are the people. The business itself, uh, you know, it's it's hard to find its beating heart a lot of the time. Um, but the people who live and work and do this for their life purpose can be pretty great people. And the, at the end of uh, the time that you've done working, that's what you look back on and enjoy. The fact that you got to know these special folks, really talented people, and you shared this together and you worked together on something. And that's something that can keep you warm by the fire for a long, long time. Well, that's how all of us feel about your work. So thank thank you you. both. Thank you. Um, So if you want to come up and, you know, you just heard a conversation with Mark Frost and now you can read a conversation with Mark Frost. Mark and David are happy to sign the book. If you want to get a selfie, if we just keep our social distance. Let me just get my hazmat suit out. (laughs) All of that, and we thank you all for coming out. Thanks, everybody. That was really fun. Uh.